Yeah, I never did look up the guy, but I don't know, maybe you know some about these people. So, uh, yeah, to get back to sort of more traditional shit for what we've been doing on this podcast, so our, our good old uh, Billy Bunter thing, where it's always so weird with YouTube, where there's uh, you get those little spikes of things that just get a ton of traffic for no particular reason. You're just, just lucky, you know, you never know. You just got to put up stuff and see what happens. So in the case of, because also with this podcast, I mean, it's the the podcast itself that gets more traffic. The YouTube thing is just, I was like, why not? Why not just throw these things on YouTube just in case someone stumbles across them? And uh, yeah, the Billy Bunter one has got like a thousand views as of this recording, which is pretty cool. Just obviously people in England are looking for Billy Bunter, which is just neat to know too. It's like, because we never heard of Billy Bunter, but obviously it's pretty ingrained in uh, England because people are Googling it and searching it and finding us yammering our fucking ignorant <laughs> thoughts about this thing we didn't know anything about. But we got a comment from a guy named Beta Man who uh, is interesting because he was born in 2001. I thought that was just kind of neat because that's a whole extra generation beyond us. He's just a young guy, just a kid. And uh, he talked about how, uh, you know, he thought it was interesting to hear some random Canadian's thoughts on Billy Bunter and uh, kind of the... Uh, state of uh, old British TV and how he got a lot of these like old shows on reel to reel from talking to his grandparents learning about it. it's interesting go go to our fucking Billy Bunter thing and read the comment if you would like <laughs> but he also left us a little list of uh, shows he would recommend of old ass British TV shows to check out which is it's good to have a little guidance because yeah everything from back then is so uh, poorly maintained, you know, some shows don't even exist. Like, that's kind of why we got into that, the remakes and stuff, is because uh, I just kept hitting these brick walls of like, oh, that show sounds interesting. None exist. Oh, that sounds cool. Nope, all gone, <laughs> you know. So at least if someone points us in the direction of something, it's uh, because it still exists, <laughs> which is really the most useful thing about an old show in our, for our purposes, is just for it to exist, and then we can work from there. Uh, so one of the shows he recommended was Hancock's Half Hour, and you had heard of that before. so I had heard of it, but, uh, but I really don't know that I've ever seen it. Right. But when we looked at the names, it's the carry-on characters from oh, any, any number of movies that were done in Britain of carry-on nurse, carry-on doctor, carry-on army, carry-on, carry-on, carry-on. And it's those same people. Yeah, which is interesting because I've heard of those. I've never seen them before, but but they're famous enough that I've heard of them. And oh, yes. Well, they're that low-life British humor with all the girls running around in sexy little outfits and showing off their bottoms and all these little uh, jokes that have double meanings. <laughs> you know, real low-life stuff. Great it, stuff. How I always heard them referenced, because for my generation, it was mainly The Naked Gun. And you take those Leslie Nielsen Naked Gun movies, and before that it was like a TV show. But then, yeah, if you dig into it more, people point back to, to the Carry the On carry movies. On things. So I don't know what the what the age of this thing is, but I suspect it was a forerunner to the Carry On movies. Well, this, uh, mm -hmm. from what I looked up, it was broadcast between 1954 and 1961. So I don't know when did the Carry On movies happen. I think the Carry On movies were late 50s early 60s i'm just going to do a real quick search because i should have looked this up earlier i just did not but uh we'll just real quick just do a quick wikipedia carry on franchise yeah it looks like 1958 
through 19, then 1974. <laughs> so. Oh yeah, and they were getting really, really bad at the end. They weren't, uh, but the early ones were quite, quite humorous. So obviously, Hancock's Half Hour was first. Yeah, only by a little bit though, because uh, the 1954 of Hancock was the first couple of years. He was uh, it was another one of these radio shows, and then it uh, moved on to TV, but pretty quickly. I think the TV started in 1956. So almost concurrently, but like a little bit before. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there were 63 episodes of this on television, and only 26 of them are missing. So that's actually pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> Over half of them still exist. But I thought it was interesting. Uh, there's only one of these on YouTube that is easy to find. And one of the commenters, I don't know enough about the state of England to know how accurate this is, but it seemed like a kind of a good point is this guy in the comments was complaining that BBC is blocking these from being uploaded to YouTube, which is why you can't really find them that easily. But he pointed out that, you know, the BBC is funded by the people, you know, it's like you got to pay your TV tax and all that weird shit in England. So isn't it weird that it's a publicly funded show, but when the public wants to watch it or put it on YouTube, the BBC is blocking them? Good point. Good point. Like, isn't there, shouldn't there be a point where, because I guess you can get these on DVD and stuff, so that's clearly the angle. BBC wants you to go buy the the Blu-rays. But yeah, it's like, when is enough enough? When does this revert back to the public domain? Like, probably never, (laughs) but it kind of should, shouldn't it? Like, well, I guess uh, the tax man, you know, they always say nothing sure in life except death and taxes. So I yeah. guess the tax man is going to make sure that you don't get to see Hancock's half hour as and I a guess, public thing, even though you paid for it. Too bad. And that's what's weird about, like, public domain is so much more than that instead of just like, oh, it would be nice to put these on YouTube. If it was public domain, then other people could sell it. <laughs> you know, like, public domain is public yeah, domain. The, the people who aren't British who didn't pay the taxes for the BBC to operate. Yeah, so that might not be the greatest solution ever either. Like, the weirdest case of that I always found, I don't know, it's so strange, it's such a technicality, but the Night of the Living Dead, you know, obviously you're familiar with that, the mm-hmm. coming to get you, Barbara, probably the most famous use of your name ever. <laughs> and, uh, just because of it was just such a dumb technicality that the proper credits weren't on the movie itself for it to be copyrighted. So it went into the public domain. And to this day, you can go buy, and maybe not anymore, but like you used to be able to, like at the dollar store, buy weird versions of Night of the Living Dead for like two bucks that had custom soundtracks that other people just made different music and put it in. I don't know why, just because they thought that would be a neat thing to do. But yeah, like once you hit public domain, it's a bizarre world. <laughs> so I can understand why they don't want to let it lapse that much. But uh, but yeah, it's like loosen the reins a little, BBC. It's, it is weird because it's a different situation than... Although even that, it's a whole different topic, I guess. But things were supposed to fall into the public domain. I think it was after 100 years. But Disney was like, the hell with that. We're not letting go of, of Mickey Mouse, you know, and they lawyered up and now the law is like never it'll never (laughs) but then in certain countries it is and in japan after 50 years anything's public domain but like the example i heard was uh that video game the legend of zelda they wanted to put like a debussy song or some shit as the music but then they couldn't sell it in other countries because that's only legal in japan i don't know that's our other podcast we'll do someday of uh legal entanglements (laughs) Uh, So I didn't actually look up who this guy is. Maybe I should look him up real quick, too. But basically, so the radio series of Hancock's Half Hour, it was 
part of this transition away from variety shows. Like even on the radio, things were just variety shows mostly towards sitcoms. This was one of the first. And it helped change the, I thought this was interesting, it helped pioneer a change in the pacing of the comedy. Because before this, it was more of that like rapid fire, Catskill, quick talking type comedy where Hancock took more from theater where you could have like someone sigh or a pause, you know, like have some some ups and downs in the pacing of the dialogue in order to make it funnier. Where before this, it was just like, hey, here's a joke, blah, 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 was the style. And I guess this Hancock guy, again, let me just look him up real quick, because like, all I know is this show is about a sort of down and out comedian, kind of actor comedian who mostly, sometimes at some periods he, he was doing okay, but the general premise was he was just kind of trying to get work. And I don't know who he is. I meant to look him up, oh. and I just didn't. You mean the star? Yeah. Um, God, we saw his name, because as soon as I heard it, I said, oh, yeah, last that, like, when you were talking about this a week or two, a couple of weeks ago. Tony Hancock. Tony Hancock. English comedian and actor, had his first major success with Hancock's Half Hour, but let's just see if, what else he might have done that we could have heard of. Oof, yes, you can kind of tell even when you're just scanning someone's wiki page. There's peak years, Hancock's half hour, and then it just uh, later years immediately. <laughs> like, like that's kind of it. I could so again, I didn't dig into this. I'm kind of doing this guy a bit of a disservice, but oh yeah. my God, he died of a suicide in 1968, age 44. Ooh. So yeah, he did. Maybe that's why his wiki page is so short. Yeah. See, I'm not thinking of him. I'm thinking of the other guys that were in this, that went on to be in the Carry On series. Tony Hancock. Yeah, I can't really say I know anything about him. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess we just solved that mystery, though. That's, I guess that's why. It's like this show ended in 61, and by 68, at the young, yeah. ripe young age of 44, he was already a, a goner. So So 61, he was uh, only in his 30s when, he, when the show finished. Yeah, yikes. And then this episode, it's called How to Win Money and Influence People. It's on YouTube, and it's from Season 3, which aired in 1957. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, again, just going by YouTube comments, all the comments are very complimentary, so that's a good sign. Uh, oh, and also, speaking of, like, this, the Beta Man guy who was born in 2001, one of these commenters said uh, she's 16 years old, as of the comment, and had been listening to the radio version of this mainly, but also whatever video she could find since she was five. So uh, it's nice that, I mean, if just taking these random examples, it seems like England, the youth of England are potentially more aware of their past than, uh, than we are, because Lord knows nobody in North America is paying attention to old shows, you know? But it seems like uh, maybe England is like more proud of their tradition of radio and TV comedies and stuff because they're good. <laughs> like when we dig back into North American stuff, you know, we're like, oh, wow, Leave it to Beaver is not as bad as, as we thought. But it still doesn't mean it's amazing. <laughs> You're not going to, like, dig into it and get your kids to watch it and stuff. So, yeah, let us hop into this. Babe, I just won you in a contest. How about a big kiss, son? Huh? How about a kick this, baby? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I <Edgar. laughs> All right, 
Darling, go on, tell me what happened to Jane Mansfield. Well, she couldn't come, so they asked me about it. She hand in for her. Oh, no. Well, you wanted a film star, you got one. May I have the captions, please? <laughs> That was like a that was weird. <laughs> like I really felt like it was kind of really up and down. Where at first I was like, okay, this seems a little dry. I'm not really sure how much I'm into this. And then they went up to the post box, and it was like really silly, but I was really liking it. I'm like, oh, this is really dumb, but in a funny way. And then the situation in this situation comedy just kept getting weirder and weirder and by the end i don't even understand what just happened (laughs) i don't know what a weird show not a bad show but a weird show well at the very end sid james said i had lost all the money but some of it was he said he said well you have your film star so he had obviously spent some of the money in film to be a film star i guess i i mean i feel like that's really trying to cram in the other character. <laughs> and there was a, there were a lot of little um, references to things that obviously meant something to people in Britain at that time when people were laughing at certain things and I'm like, okay, I don't get it. I don't know who that person is. Right. Well, I was thinking, so the, the basic premise was uh, in an attempt to not, I guess he had a steady job. He didn't want to work, right. real work at a regular job, so he's entering into... Contests. Yeah, newspaper competitions, which, uh, I mean, that is, I saw a little documentary once about, this is about 15 years ago, but people that do that, you know, like just spend all day and and it, it works because like uh, there'll be times like they'll win like a, a cruise to Hawaii or something. Well, the odds are that most of the times you won't win anything, but, right. but your odds, because you enter so much, you yeah. will win something. Like so all people... of a sudden he wins, he's winning, and he's winning, and he's winning, and he's winning, and he's making a fortune. And, well, I was going to say this little documentary I watched about people that do this all day, like they'll win these big prizes and they can't accept them because it coincides with another prize that they won like that. So, I mean, it's... A silly premise, but it sort of is true. If you spend all day entering all these things, yeah, you, you can win some stuff. Oh, it's there. You'll get something. I was wondering, though, do you think, are those really the types of competitions that they had back then? Some of those were really bizarre. Like, Well, I think they were a running joke right. that you would win first money galore. But then when the Japanese guys come in and it's two bowls of rice a day. <laughs> so obviously they were just making a big joke right. about how silly some of these things are. And even just stuff like pick uh, pick the best potential husband for Jane Mansfield. Like nowadays, a competition is, it's really just to make the effort to send in a thing. <laughs> like it's not like that. I don't know. That, that was a little odd. But anyway, yeah, so he's entering all these competitions and his friend is like, you got to get a normal job. This is ridiculous. This is no way to uh, try to get, you know. You can... On in life. Yeah. And then, yeah, my favorite part was because <laughs> it was it was so silly, but. But for some reason, I could just buy into this silliness more where he goes, he's got a wheelbarrow because he has 200 entries that all need to be in by tonight. And he takes them to the post box and the post office guy won't take his letters directly. The letters have to go in the post box before they'll go in the mailbag. Like all just super contrived and super silly. But that part was funny of just like... Well, it's, it, he was making a crack at a, how stupid some bureaucracy is. Yeah. I mean, those are the rules that you absolutely had to mail each letter. But then, of course, time runs out. He only gets three or four letters in there. And then uh, the postman has to leave because his time is up. He spent enough time at that box and... 
And, and that is so true. Like, there's so much bureaucracy goes on and stupidity and all these things. I like to, uh, I think my favorite parts were because this was like broadcast live and they did it in like long takes. The parts where they, they goof up, like I noticed uh, it was like seven, seven minutes at the start, all flawless until he stumbles over a line and he just directly looks at the camera and is like, I'll try that again, <laughs> shall I? But then with the post office box guy, that guy was definitely doing, uh, he was... He read uh, living. Yeah, and an extra, an extra silly accent. Like it, it really sounded like one of... Uh, Graham Chapman's characters in Monty Python, where he won't like won't open his mouth. I'm here to to pick up the mail, and <laughs> and he's just bleh, 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 bleh. so like uh, Hancock, Tony Hancock goes like whatever that was you said, I disagree because <laughs> he's like got this weird clipped dumb accent. Like the stuff like that was my favorite part. But yeah, so uh, so Hancock gets his hand stuck in the uh, in the post box. So the the mail guy's like, good luck, see you later. And then a cop comes over and is like, you clearly are trying to steal the mail. And then through some silly nonsense, the cop gets his hand stuck, so Hancock leaves him. And yeah, like, the whole episode was really dumb, but that was my favorite dumb stuff. <laughs> uh, to me, I, I could kind of buy into it. I'm like, all right, that's pretty funny. Yeah, because like then they show it two weeks later, and there's two cops with their hands <laughs> yeah. in the box. And then they show it three weeks later, and there's three cops with their hands in the box. Which I guess is, yeah, that's kind of emblematic of, of where we're at. Like, you can tell this is an early sitcom, because, yeah, the situations are so much more outlandish, even than, like, Jack Benny or something. Like, his stuff was exaggerated, but relatively believable this stuff is not believable like that's the world we're in we're in like which i guess kind of ties in more to carry on and naked gun like it's like zany it's bizarre levels of stuff happening so yeah then all these millions of contests pay off and that part was pretty funny too where after the first like three people come in and give him his big prizes and they're like wow i can't believe you won but then they flip it where now it's like, okay, next, what do you win? Put it in the, like, they, they switch to this is the new reality where there's just a nonstop line of, of winning stuff. Yeah, sometimes the things that they won do. Sometimes it was money, but then sometimes it was things like uh, 200 tea cozies. <laughs> and he just told him to put those somewhere. And then I guess, so up until that point, so that's, a, you know, over half the episode, I'm pretty on board. I'm like, all right, this isn't bad. I kind of like this. I guess where it gets... It hits that point where it's, like, not fun to watch. It reminded me of um, a lot of Amos and Andy, where, you know, you got Kingfish, who's like, don't worry about it, give me the money, give me the stuff, I'll handle all your stuff, but he's really just trying to rip off his friend. Except in Amos and Andy, at the end, you know, it was like, haha, you, I looked like I was being a total idiot, but I was actually double-crossing you. Where in this one, Hancock is just an idiot. He just signs over all his money, and that's the end of that plot line of, like, he'll never have money again. And it's just, like, frustrating. It's like, how can you be this malleable and this dumb? Well, he does kind of get his at the end, because he, uh, behind the scenes of the, the giant menu, he punches out buddy yeah well, <laughs> buddy but, ripped them off but yeah at that point that's where it's like i can't even follow the reality of it anymore where so even though hancock won all this money but he signed it over to his friend as an advisor and his friend just took the money and went off gallivanting about the world and just whatever so then hancock wins this other contest that he gets a date with jane mansfield but that's already a weird enough prize but i mean if if you won that prize obviously part of the prize would be we've set up a thing for you to go do but no it's his responsibility to pay for jane mansfield and he has no money 
so he has to mortgage his house in an afternoon to get 50 pounds and, and then when he shows up jane's man jane mansfield couldn't make it but his his friend who he gave all the money to see that's way too like there's just literally no connection anymore of like why is his friend here instead of jane mansfield and just some weird offhand reference of like well you wanted a movie star here i am like at this point it's too much. It's like I can't even connect the dots. I'm like, you guys yeah, just... Yeah, but that's a little twist that they put at the end. You weren't expecting that. Well, I wasn't expecting it because it's 100% illogical, though. <laughs> you were expecting to see Jane Mansfield, weren't you? No, but I was expecting it to make be on the vaguest edge of making some kind of sense. That's all. Like, I, I feel like even comedy needs to make some but kind of sense. To me, that made sense because I was thinking, this is a really low-budget operation here not not you can't tell me that jane mansfield's going to be sitting at that table because she was quite a big american star at the time at the time this would have been made so you can't tell me she's going to be in this little lower but maybe she is yeah no i mean so it was quite a surprise when it was him that's fine but i feel like uh, and again i don't have because i mean i just watched it i'd have to brainstorm for a while but but if I'm in the writer's room and they're plotting this out, or probably, you know, it was probably based on a radio episode or something, it's like, okay, obviously we don't have Jane Mansfield. We got to loop back in the friend and tie up this story. So let's, you know, let's put our thinking caps on. Let's figure this out. And they did not figure it out. They just threw him in there and didn't explain it at all. Like, I, I can't I can't give that one a pass. Like, most of it I thought was pretty good and pretty funny. But that, But that's like, and that's also, that's the dismount. That's like the end of Curb Your Enthusiasm or the end of Seinfeld when all of the, the ties come together. And that's, that was the moment for something to come together. And it made no sense at all. <laughs> like, yeah, see, I found it did. It explained what happened to the money. It brought that character in to finish off the... Well, even that thing, though, you said about, like, because he has the line about, like, hey, you wanted a movie star, here I am. But you're the one who supplied the idea that, well, he must have gone and spent some money in the pictures. None of that's in the episode. No, but that is, but that is quite, I find that with British drama, British, with most British shows, they don't lay it all out for you. They leave a whole lot of it to your imagination. Like, you've got to fill in all those little spots. And that's, uh, that's kind of their claim to fame, um, whereas... American comedy or American TV shows have to more like lay it out, tell you exactly what happened rather than just leaving it up to your imagination. Like you just figure out for yourself what happened here, what he did with all the money. I think though, like what if we, and I agree in general, that's uh, admirable and better to do it that way. But let's look at it from the other perspective, the way they ended that Hancock episode. Instead of how could you make it better? How could you make it worse? How could you possibly make that make less sense? I think you'll have a hard time making it more nonsensical than it is. Like, that's just too much. That's too... That's like the episode's done. Let's just wrap it up. Let's hope nobody thinks about it too hard. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not saying it was a bad show. It was a great show. It was fine. It was really good. Well, I think of it too. They squeezed a lot in there in half an hour. I'm presuming that show was half an hour. Yeah, 26 minutes or something. Yeah, probably had some commercials in it originally. But they squeezed quite a bit of stuff in there. Yeah, I, I thought it was okay. I thought it got off to a very slow start. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but once... Uh, once, once they he, got to the post box. Once he got to the post box, it was pretty good. And he got a, those few digs in about the bureaucracy, government bureaucracy, and how stupid it is. Um, he got in all those... Well, 
re- there were a lot of references to people that I think that if you knew who those people were, it would have had a little more meat to it. But we we don't know who they are. I mean, I know who Jane Mansfield is, but I don't know who anybody else was. But he made a lot of references to people throughout that. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm just trying to think. Like, I don't even know what could you have. So obviously, the you got to end with there is no more money for next week. You got to end with his friend frittered away everything. So I don't know. Maybe he could be at that restaurant because he's working there now maybe he's a dishwashing there or something or he's a waiter there because well all your money's gone old boy you know something some reason there's just or 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 the the fact that he shanghaied this contest i don't know how again but maybe somehow he got wind of the contest something i mean i don't know i just i think it's fair to say that that was not fully developed can we say that (laughs) that's not one of those classic endings where you're like you've done it ah genius what a dismount if you watch the ever watch the carry on movies they're full of that kind of stuff right that just don't seem to have any solid conclusion they have a conclusion but it's not really solid you don't walk out of there saying you know where everybody's going to be and how everybody has a happy ending and um there's always this stuff that's kind of out there and left to your left to your imagination that's all i can say but yeah and i did like it's obviously this is probably quite unusual for the time the uh the fourth wall breaks they're very small but yeah like when they stumble over the words and say you know i'm going to take that again but even right at the end like kind of how the episode ended is he's just calling for the credits he's like can i just get the staff roll like i'm done we're done <laughs> and i like that that's that's kind of cool so uh yeah, not 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 bad. Not a bad show. It is a little weird that uh, I almost kind of wish I had looked up Hancock after, because I when you learn somebody died so young <laughs> right before you watch it, I kept thinking that the whole time of like, yeah, this was probably this was the peak, you know, like you had this show and it was still gonna run another till sixty one after this, and it was on the radio and people loved it in the comments. It was obviously pretty famous at the time. Like, I mean, I don't know the details of his sad decline, but I mean, I guess if it's that, that sad thing, right? Of like, I did it. I'm, I'm famous. I made it. And then, then it's over. And then you cruise for another few years and then you're like, fuck this. <laughs> Such a bummer. It's hard not to think about that when you watch it. So yeah, even though this has nothing to do at all with what we just watched, I just thought as a neat, a finishing thing, a little thing to toss on at the end. So, yeah, we've just been eating a lot of sushi lately because they have one place in our hometown where there's an actual person that makes sushi. Like, you can get the pre-made supermarket sushi, but we have the one fancy supermarket with an actual sushi counter and people that make sushi. And we've been eating sushi lately and just like, man, Japanese food's cool. So I was trying to find a little making of sushi type documentary and I just couldn't really. Just nothing stood out that seemed like it was that interesting. But it did remind me of this guy, Paolo from Tokyo, I've been watching, who I just love this guy's videos. I'm like obsessed with them, where he does these. I don't even know how he gets access to this stuff because Japan is kind of, uh, you know, companies and corporations and stuff are, are not known for being open and for like letting people in and making documentaries. But I think because this guy has an Asian wife, she helps facilitate these things. So he's got this whole series of day in the life videos where he follows different careers throughout the day so this one is a ramen chef that's a little bit 
similar to sushi, you know, it's, it's in the same ballpark. And I just think these are so interesting. I don't know how much we'll have to say about it, but we'll see. Maybe we'll just watch it for the hell of it. But yeah, this is Paolo from Tokyo, day in the life of a Japanese ramen chef. And there's just something about, I guess, Japan in particular, they're so kind of regimented and workaholics, you know, <laughs> like they're famous for overworking everybody. And that is a common theme in all of these. People wake up at the crack of dawn, they work till super late, but just seeing the day to day, because there's also something like so, like the level of service and quality in Japan is way higher than ours. <laughs> and it's just, I think, neat to see what these processes are like. So yeah, let's just watch that as our, our random thing. See if we have anything to say about it. It's been a long day. It's like a 16, 17 hour day. Yeah, and that's one thing, especially because there's like, I don't know, he's got maybe uh, probably about 15 of these. So if we do, because I, I, I like them. I don't know if you want mm, to stick no, with that these. That like, very interesting. Yeah, because I don't know if we did it as a whole episode. You know, maybe it's a little hard to talk about, but it's, it's just something to throw on at the end. Like, why not? And that's so common is like the five hours of sleep or whatever, which blows my mind because even if I get eight or nine hours, I'm still just fighting not to be cranky all day. <laughs> like, I don't know how they do it. And, like, and they seem to work all day. Like yeah. Once they got there, it was constant work. You didn't see them taking breaks and an hour here, an hour there. They Now, maybe they did take breaks, but you didn't get the impression that they did, that they were there. Yeah, well, that's one thing, too. He doesn't cover as many office jobs. There is some, but that is one um, criticism I've heard of the Japanese work culture is that they're more concerned that you look like you're working more than you are working. You know, like if you're at an office job, they do, they stay there for ungodly hours, but you're not necessarily working that whole time. But yeah, it's not at all the same in that yeah, kind of no, environment. That, that, that looked like that was good, solid work. Yeah. And hot work, too. Yeah, 38 degrees, oh. 100 Fahrenheit. In the, so he was you saying just be like, sweating the whole time in there. Yeah, and it makes sense because it's like a relatively small shop. How he was saying that uh, they have the kitchen across the street from the main restaurant because it, if it was all together in one place, then the whole place would be 100 degrees. <laughs> it's like, geez. But yeah, even... Uh, even in North America, like obviously we don't have the same level of uh, super regimented, you know, rigorous work. But man, it was such a shock to me when, because I always had it really easy here in Fredericton. I just worked at a comic shop. There's almost not an easier job you could have. And then when I moved to Vancouver, I was a dishwasher. It was my first job. And I couldn't believe it, how hard it was. Because yeah, it was a similar thing. Like even when we're done, you got to stay there for an extra hour, hour and a half to meticulously clean everything so there's no mildew and no no nothing. And uh, yeah, like it blew my mind, especially late at night and I would miss the subway. So I had to take the train home or the buses home. So that took a while. And I'd go home and go to sleep and wake up and be like, fuck, I got like two hours and then I got to go back to work. Is this how the world is? I hate this. And then I got a coffee shop job and it was a lot more relaxed. But yeah, that uh, kitchen life is a nightmare all the time <laughs> and especially there like yeah japan is just kicking it up like uh i thought it was so interesting that i bet if you ate that ramen it's probably that that thing where it's like so delicious and you don't know why you know, like there's just something about it and then you see how they made it and it's like okay we got the beef broth but that's mixed with the fish broth and then uh not only the spices but then the special um wasabi paste that they make themselves and then 
what did he say, like peanut paste? And uh, it had a peanut paste and... Uh, wasn't it like cheese or something? Ginger and a cheese, uh, yeah. And you yeah. just wonder, like, how many generations of just people experimenting did it take? But even <laughs> there, he... he uh, He's a chef, but he's not supposed to rest on his laurels. He's supposed to continually come up with new things. Yeah. So you saw him making that new, that new broth that didn't pass muster. Muster. And extra bad for him too, right? Where, you know, they his day started at like six thirty in the morning, and then by seven at night, it was the night staff. Like the rest of the staff got to go home. <laughs> he didn't, because you know he's like the restaurant manager, not the owner, but high up. Like man, what a. Because that's where, like, we were watching those things about capsule hotels. Like, that's where that whole culture came from in Japan is, why bother going home? What's the point? (laughs) So just go to the capsule hotel or whatever and just uh, maybe you'll see your wife and kids on the weekend. (laughs) It was very interesting, though. It it really gave you an eye-opener of, I mean, we think of ramen noodles cooked in water, usually. Right. Or possibly, like sometimes we'll say, uh, it'll say, cook it in chicken broth. But they used a whole lot more stuff. They had fish, pork, all different kinds of spices that they, like seven kinds of chili. That one, one of those things that they were making had seven, yeah. a mixture of seven different kinds of chili. Like, wow. Yeah, like if you went and got your, your Mr. Noodle. <laughs> It's like not even 1% of 1% of the same thing. Even that, though, I was surprised about in Japan is, yeah, because our, our standard thing is Mr. Noodle. But even there, like, because, uh, like, restaurants like that, I didn't get to go too much. I went to some with Brad because he could speak Japanese. But, you know, I probably could have navigated in English. But it, you never know. Like, it's it's awkward at best. And sometimes you do stumble into a place where just nobody can talk to you. And it's... I didn't have the uh, confidence (laughs) to go to places like that. So I I got a lot of stuff just at convenience stores. But even at a convenience store, if you buy noodles there, it'll have so many packets. Like to them, a Mr. Noodles in water, it's like, why bother? What are you doing? So in the 7-Eleven, like ramen bowl, you'd open it up and it would have like a paste, a couple of different spices, a garnish packet, and the really fancy ones even had like a freeze-dried circle of pork that you'd open up and put on, and then you put the water in. In in that case, it is just water, but you've added so much stuff. And that to them is still just kind of like you're slumming it at (laughs) 7-Eleven, you know? (laughs) Like their level of ramen and noodles in general is just so high compared to us. Like it's weird that we're in North America. I think it's so funny when you're at a supermarket and... Mr. Noodles is like 25 cents a pack. But if you want, you can get the no-name one. It's only 22 cents a pack. Like, we, it's ridiculous how, how low class we're willing to go, <laughs> where they just won't. They just won't do that. No, it was, it was very appetizing. And they didn't just have, like, a bowl of noodles with sauce on them. You always got all these little condiments on top, like sliced green onions. Uh, well, who knows what else. But uh, very colorful. Yeah. And they, they looked delicious. Gee, I'd like to have a big bowl of it right now, of yeah. something. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the only downside to watching some of these is uh, <laughs> you do just get, you just want to eat all the stuff. It kind of reminded me, too, of uh, the spice levels, how they had up to high-level spice and then devil-level spice. Is uh, The first real place I went to, it was still a chain, but it's called uh, Coco Curry, Coco Ichiban, and it's like a, a curry place that Brad took me to. And that was nice because once he walked me through the menu, I did go 
back to some of those on my own later because I knew how it worked and I felt comfortable enough with ordering. But the first time I went, they had the spicy level was one to 10. And I was like, all right, I don't know, seven, I guess. I can't remember if I ordered six or seven. It's like, I don't want to overdo it, but you know, I want it to be spicy. And I almost died. I couldn't believe it. I was like sitting there trying to talk to Brad and I'm like, uh, 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 like I could barely breathe. I got to drink water. And they did manage to eat it. And I'm like, what the hell happened? So I found out later when I looked at the menu more closely, really it's one to five. One to five is the real thing. I should have ordered a two or a three. Beyond five is like taking your life into your own hands. Like you don't really order that. That's only for people that want to show off how much. And I was at seven. <laughs> like, I was like, but that made me feel better because I thought I was just a wuss. But I was in those devil levels and I just didn't, I was just, you know, ordered wrong. So I never made that mistake again. <laughs> well, and then you, you'd have to know, like, is one low or is one high? Yeah. You could, boy, you, in a foreign country, you'd have a, you could easily reverse that. Yeah. Oh, 10 could true. be low. <laughs> and, and one could be the highest. But yeah, so I figure, yeah, we'll just uh, toss yeah, those into we'll... the list. Because, like, there's all kinds of weird things. There's, like, a, an office worker, a delivery person, a person who works at a pachinko parlor. Uh, he just put up one a little while ago of just, like, uh, farmers who, who make, like, uh, who raise Wagyu cattle. You know, Wagyu beef is, like, that world-famous five-star beef and... Or there's even one or just a guy who draws comics, just a comic book guy. And he's maybe one of the more relaxed ones. But yeah, you'll see that invariably for all of these people, it's take the amount of work we would consider normal and double it. <laughs> and that's just, that's just their day. It makes me think though, like, I don't know, I guess, like, could I even survive sleeping five hours a night every day? But I guess the difference maybe is like, if you're, you're sure you only slept five hours, but then you're thrust into this really regimented situation where you're surrounded by people that all expect you to work you know like if i slept five hours a day and then it's like now i got to motivate myself to work on podcasts or do whatever the fuck i do all day it's really not the same as you're in there as part of the team and you can't let down the team so you just get used to it you just get used to that life but that, that's how they live that's what they do and uh yeah it is really interesting so yeah maybe we'll just start tossing in those palo videos because a lot of people make videos about japan but his are the best well, then, then there's that guy, Chris Broad. He does the best travel videos. Travel. But it's very unique that uh, that this Paolo guy gets this behind-the-scenes access. And that's the, the theory everyone has is because he has uh, a Japanese wife that his wife probably makes those, um, you know, he's like, first, here's our YouTube channel. This is legit. Look, this has got a million views. This is a real thing. And, yeah, probably she helps make it more comfortable. And I think Japanese people are proud too like they want people to see the process behind like why is japanese stuff the best here's why because <laughs> <laughs> no one is half-assing anything at any point so yeah it's interesting all right so there's that episode next week we'll have another tv show and uh for dessert paolo from tokyo <laughs>